right? And I don't know that this is a good investment for you. <laughs> That's astounding. Um, I know a couple of lawyers that you should definitely talk to. Uh, that is illegal <laughs> under the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The idea that a president of a higher education institution would tell you what job you are and are not allowed to take or what yep. degree you can or cannot enroll for um, is uh, the total derogation of every principle on which this country was founded. Uh, and the idea that uh, that that would in any way be acceptable under the existing economic paradigm um, should cause my entire profession to go hang them their heads in shame, never to be seen in public again uh, until they issue a blanket apology to the entire United States population signed by every single PhD economist who has currently been uh, uh, adjudicated as such by uh, any PhD granting institution in this country. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So uh, today we've got um, a, a, a topical guest, economist Marshall Steinbaum, who is, if I'm not mistaken, currently and uh, uh, works at the Roosevelt Institute, but will shortly be moving to the University of, of Utah to be a proper professor. Is that is that correct, Marshall? Yes, although I have absolutely no intention of being proper. <laughs> well done, well done. Bravo and congratulations and, and welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, all you future econ econ students out there, if you're looking to do a PhD or, or master's or whatever, I don't know how economics works, but uh, <laughs> definitely look at the University of Utah there. You get the straight dope. None of that None of that uh, neoliberal bullshit. Yeah, no, we definitely don't do that. And, and even though you have your PhD from the University of Chicago, I doubt you'll be the Chicago School of Economics when you teach. Well, I mean, I don't like to pretend to be anything other than what I am. Uh, you know, it's kind of helpful to kind of to, to be able to, you know, shoot from behind the battlements, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, well, hopefully your students in the future will not have to go too deep into debt to learn from your wise lectures and seminars. I hope so, too. Thanks to the great Senator Elizabeth Warren. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. The the. Um... I guess this brings up our first topic of conversation here, the the Warren plan um, in which she uh, she wants to set up free college, but she also wants to forgive uh, a lot of student debt on a sort of sliding scale. Like it's somewhat means tested depending on your income. I think you get 50,000, but the sort of amount diminishes as you make more and more money. So I guess, yeah, first thing, Marshall, what, what are your thoughts on the plan? Um you think it's any good? Yes. Yeah, I think it is definitely a strong step in the right direction. Um, there's a lot of uh, reluctance in the kind of student debt, uh, higher education policy establishment about cancellation of student debt. My interpretation of that reluctance is basically that people don't want to admit how much of a policy failure student debt has been, or I should say the expansion of student debt, the enormous uh, explosion of the uh amount of student debt outstanding in the population um, way beyond what the program was envisioned to have been when it was first created. Um, you know, people have for a long time thought of student debt as good debt, uh, that it is kind of inherently uh, 
uh, able to be paid back because by taking it on, you acquire the skills that allow you to earn more in the labor market and thus to have the wherewithal to pay back whatever amount of student debt you, you acquire. Um, that's been the basis of federal student loan policy for a long time, in my estimation. I consider it to be the largest federal labor market policy um, of recent decades, um, and it's premised on a kind of understanding of how the labor market works, of how the economy works, that um, human capital, that uh, skills acquired in higher education translate directly into uh, earnings in the labor market, and this makes it uh, sensible for the population to layer on more and more student debt, more and more higher education credentials, um, because it's kind of has this magical ability to pay itself back. Um, and I think this this Warren proposal recognizes the uh, long-term failure that that policy has been. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I want to dig into that that aspect of it a little bit, a little bit later, but um, I guess there's sort of like, there's two components here, right? So you want to set up free two-year and four-year uh, public colleges, you know, across across the country, so that people can attend at least tuition free. You know, there'll still be some room and board stuff, presumably. Um, and then, you know, there's a debt cancellation effect. And um, maybe if you could go into like a little bit more detail and on the the specific case for for canceling that debt, at least at least like a decent portion of it. And in you know, she wants to pay for it. Pay, pay for it, quote unquote, with a with a kind of uh, a big old wealth tax of or, uh, the, or is it part of the two percent wealth tax on people making fifty million or more? I believe. Uh, yeah, the t- oh, tax on the rich. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but anyway, so so you're looking to pay for it, but you could also, you know, I guess I could imagine as a system where you just you just cancel the debt and you just force all the lenders to eat that hit. You know, like what do you, do you think? What's the case for doing it one way instead of the other? Would you say? And like, what are the sort of broader consequences of forgiving that debt? And and like, why should we do it? In your opinion? Sure. So a lot of issues kind of being swept in here. Um, the federal government is the creditor for the vast majority of student debt that's currently outstanding. So uh, it's th- there aren't a vast set of lenders out there um, for most people's student debt. I think it's more than 90%. The creditor is the federal government at this point. And, um, you know, it's not logistically any difficulty for the federal government to basically forgive the debt or for to cancel the debt. Um, they're the creditor. They can legally do that. Um, there's the sort of fiscal policy question of, okay, well, that's a large stream of money that's coming into the federal treasury or expected to come into the federal treasury. Um, you know, to what extent do we need to offset that uh, expected stream of income from the source of people paying back their student loans with uh, some other source of revenue that kind of pertains to the um, progressive taxation proposals that you mentioned earlier. Um, And I'm happy to talk about progressive taxation. I think uh, Senator Warren has also proposed some really good ideas on that front. Um, But I also think it sort of serves to uh, separate those issues, at least in respect to the higher education slash student debt policy proposal um, that's on the table today, uh, because I think it really stands on its own. um, And I think that it deserves attention unto itself. um, And the progressive taxation side of the coin um, is kind of its own separate policy area. I mean, linked by a larger philosophy of how the economy works 
works and how it should work, um, but I don't want to kind of bog us down in discussing a student loan cancellation policy or a free college policy um, with the sort of, well, how are you going to pay for it kind of question that I think right, has right, gotten, right, right. gotten you know, left policy way too far in the weeds in the past. Well, Marshall, would you would you say that the study that Stephanie Kelton kind of promoted about debt cancellation being stimulative and, and on balance helping the economy is is worth talking about? Or, or well, is that well also- as a co-author of that study, I would have to say yes, dispassionately. <laughs> um, yeah, I, the, I mean the basic prem- the macroeconomic premise behind that work is that. Uh, Currently, uh, households in the form, you know, student debtors that are households uh, carry a lot of uh, debt that's weighing them down. And if the burden of that debt were transferred from relatively uh, encumbered households to the relatively unencumbered government in terms of who's uh, on the hook to pay down that debt, that would be macroeconomically stimulative in a Keynesian sense, that the federal government has the ability to carry debt uh, much more so than households. That is to say, when you relieve the households of that burden of debt, the uh, result is that they spend more money, and this has a Keynesian multiplier effect. Um, so yes, I mean, as you know, we we released that study. What I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. Um, and I stand by the uh, conclusion of it that uh, ca- that transferring the burden of student debt from households to the government uh, would stimulate the macro economy. Um, I think that's kind of not really the terrain on which the battle over higher education and student debt policy will be fought, as important as it is to say that, quote unquote, we can afford to cancel all the student debt. Um, that's not really what the uh, policy wonks or the policy debate over uh, whether we should actually do this will be fought about. Um, it will be fought over um, to what degree is this an unfair policy? Is this uh, egalitarian in a horizontal sense? That is, you know, the people who uh, didn't have to take on debt to go to college, you know, won't necessarily get anything out of the cancellation of people's outstanding balances. Is that fair uh, versus, you know, the people who have to uh take on debt to go to college or a very different uh, subset of the population than the people who don't. Um, so there's all these sort of uh, important dimensions of the debate over student debt and higher education policy that I think deserve to be gone into, um, in part because a lot of the uh, conventional wisdom, especially that gets bandied about in the national economic policy press um, about student debt and its impact on the economy is just totally false. Right. Yeah, there's this notion that like the people who go to college are just like like they're they're uh, coextensive with the kind of people who go to Harvard. You know, they're they're uh, wealthy white people. You know, like the very upper crust of the, um, you know, uh, you know, black or Latino populations, and so like it's really not that progressive of policy. And I think you know, in in like a to- total distribution sense, that may be like broadly speaking true but if you look at the distribution of debt it really extends very far down into the middle class and the working class and the people who have the debt problem the worst as you as you write in this boston review article you know and as uh trustee mcmillan cottom has written in her book uh, lower ed it's it's the the sort of black middle class that gets sucked into these um these these for-profit schools um you know and and so like it's it's not as simple as that right 
Yeah, I think there's this total misconception about the role that higher education plays and the role that student debt plays in the economy that's really just decades out of date um, and nonetheless has an enormous impact on the sorts of policy proposals that are uh, considered mainstream or acceptable in, uh, uh, I don't know, conventional political uh, debate, um, you know, namely that uh, higher education is a uh, kind of privilege of the rich that if people, if, if you know, the graduates or uh, master's degree students or whatever are unable to pay back their student debt, then um, that's because they majored in the wrong thing um, and they kind of stupidly took liberal arts classes when in fact they should have majored in STEM or they should have uh, been indoctrinated into nonsense economics in business schools. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just not the reality that uh, higher education, that student debt play in the economy today. I mean, um, all of the routes into the labor market that would have once avoided higher education and thus student debt um, have been kind of shut off. And so, Increasingly, higher education is a universal experience of entering cohorts, even people who uh, would have avoided it uh, or, or just sort of skirted the edges of higher education in order to get a decent uh, entry-level job now have to go through that. Um, and at the same time, we've enormously reduced state uh, funding to higher education institutions, and that has induced them to increase uh, prices and tuition um, so that anybody who kind of makes contact with the higher education system automatically takes on you know thousands and thousands of dollars worth of student debt that would previously have uh, not been part of the kind of economic life cycle of entering cohorts. Um, so all of that goes to say that this idea that student debt is a privilege and that the people whining about student debt are um, whiny, uh, overeducated millennials uh, who made stupid decisions, you know, that just has nothing to do with reality. And I think um, anything, anyone who uh, treats student debt as that sort of uh, niche policy issue can kind of be dismissed out of hand. Yeah, they can go take a, a long walk off a short pier, but also, you know, it reminds me of the yellow vests, yellow jackets uh, kind of protests going on in, in France, which is to say it's not just not an individual irresponsible choice that led to the debt. It's that society, the markets, government induces people to do this, saying that this is what will make you successful, right? Like, And credentialization, which became, as, as you wrote about so well, uh, the way that basically – um, different industries could simply require more education for any old job rather than uh, a market that simply needs higher skilled people. And therefore, the problem is that people aren't skilled enough to do the jobs. Um, you know, the, the, the propaganda was that if you get some more skills, if you get some more education, you're going to be able to get these great jobs. And therefore, the debt you're taking on will more than pay for itself and, and, and beyond. And so people were sold a bill of goods to get into all this debt and are having a hard time paying it back because of that lie. So it's quite the opposite of somebody making an irresponsible decision. It's someone thinking they're making the responsible decision by listening to everyone else and then being doubly screwed because of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that exactly encapsulates the big issue here. Um, it's offensive to me that my fellow policy wonks and economists will take the pose of uh, dictating to the public what they ought not to be doing, what they should, what they sh uh, should be doing, taking on uh, increased credentials, taking on more student debt in order to suit themselves to the needs of today's jobs. Um, when you know the 
obvious failure is not the individuals taking on the debt, it's the economists who simply don't understand how the economy works, um, making prescriptions to individual behavior <laughs> when um, you know they totally discount the role that uh, credentialization, that uh, employer power and labor markets plays in terms of shifting the costs of job training from uh, employers, from institutions, from states who used to take on the role of uh, public education uh, to individuals uh, at the same time as as wages are stagnant or declining. Yeah, so so let's let's dig into this the 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 sort of like underlying um, economic and normative theory. Uh, you, you've got a great paper which I which which I uh, uh, will will post in the description, but it it's you know it's about you know the the student debt crisis in general, but um you know the 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 sort of um norm like the 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 slogan that unites all this stuff is some something they call human capital right and you know so i I'll, let me lay out my understanding of this and you can correct me if i'm wrong and and add to it but but you know you you have the sort of like the market brain you have neoliberal ideology which says that individuals receive through the market what they deserve to get and so the reason to to uh get an education credential is because that increases your value in the market because the more skills you have the more money you will make and the reason to finance higher education through loans instead of just public like institutions just like elementary school and high school uh is because the uh students in college will will receive the benefits of that those increased wages right and so is that is that a fair summary would you say yeah absolutely and so what what is you know according to your detailed and excellent research what is wrong with that theory <laughs> oh, well where to begin um i would say the basic thing that's wrong is the idea that the market serves to pay you what you're worth um because it uh magically uh uh, assigns the correct value to any given um, bundle of skills or what have you. Uh, you know, this is sort of the essential magical assumption at the heart of free market economics, um, and uh, it just you know doesn't hold in this case as it doesn't hold in a lot of cases. I mean, I think the labor market is the first place to look. Yeah, yeah, but so so digging into this in, into the human capital uh, concept specifically, like. Uh, what what have you found, you know, like, is it the case from your research that as people obtain and oh, the broad population has obtained more uh, education, they're getting paid more? You see, Marshall, it seems like complete bullshit that people are told to get more degrees and they'll make more money. But I just don't know. Is that true? Do people get paid more when they get more education? Is, is that something that's uh, that's actually happening? Yeah, no. Um, so we've seen the population's gotten a lot more educated over uh, recent decades and recent cohorts. Uh, more and more people are going to college for a longer time, getting more degrees. Uh, people who would previously have just had a high school degree are now getting an associate's degree. People who would previously have stopped at an associate's degree are now, in more recent cohorts, going on to a BA or a master's degree, and so on and so forth. Um, that's exactly why you see this rising student debt in the overall population. 
production and uh, the effect that that's having is to reduce the amount of uh, reduce the wages reduce the earnings it for a given education category so I've likened this to a uh, going up the down escalator in the sense that you know people feel the need to get more and more credentials because that's how you get more earnings than somebody who has fewer credentials that's that's true uh, but there's sort of this rat race going on where you know as everybody sort of scrambles up the escalator and the escalator is going down uh, the the uh, earnings associated with a given level of credentials is uh, is declining um, and that's what's creating essentially wage stagnation in the cross-section even as people's uh, higher education credentials and therefore their student debt is is just skyrocketing upwards and is that related to the fact that you know any good prescription has to understand that the the diagnosis has to be good for the prescription to be right. So was that just a false diagnosis that the problem in the economy was the lack of skilled workers? And therefore, if we get the skilled workers, that will solve things. So, so was that a bullshit solution because the diagnosis was wrong? Yes. Yes. In a word, there was a misunderstanding of how the labor market works, that the uh, rising inequality, the uh, wage stagnation was caused by workers not having the quote-unquote skills needed for today's jobs, um, and therefore if they got more skills, then they would get the earnings that uh, would be associated with higher productivity. Um, you know, all of that is nonsense, and it's a uh, shame to the economics profession that they bandied this about for so many decades without having a clue what they were talking about. Um, this, and this, I think, you know, we, we've mentioned the word credentialization, uh, in, in the past few minutes, but, but can you explain exactly that phenomenon and sort of what it reflects on like the behavior on the part of employers? Yeah. So on the part of employers, what you get is the ability to shift the, uh, responsibility for, uh, job training, um, to individual workers uh, as a result of the increased power that employers have in labor markets um, and uh, on the part of the like students slash workers that translates into needing more and more uh, higher education degrees in order to get a given job so I I mean I, I was first sort of turned on to this because a friend of mine uh, when I was in graduate school um, had uh, an undergraduate degree in uh, engineering from a good engineering school that would like definitely have qualified him for a good engineering job um, you know in prior cohorts but like he had to stay for an extra year to get a master's that was like another $50,000 or more in student debt um, in order to get that same job um, and that's kind of credentialization at the high end of the labor market, you know, if you think about, you know, entry-level jobs that wouldn't have required higher education of any kind in the past now requiring some uh, so, some uh, uh, training of that kind. So, um, yeah, I mean, the the dynamic of credentialization, I mean, the, the, the thing to understand about credentialization as a dynamic in the labor market is that it vastly, uh, it, it's vastly unequal in its um, impact on different types of workers. So, um, you know, a, yeah. you know, like being white is a credential for a lot of workers um, that uh, precludes the need for increased higher education. Um, but you know, lots of people don't have the credential of being white, so they need to have they need to make up for that credential in other respects by taking on student debt in order to get degrees that white students, white workers, wouldn't need in order to get a given job. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think it's worth drawing this point out because. Yeah, as you say, you have, you know, the black and brown population, they're, they're trying to compete, they're trying to do, you know, um, do the quote unquote right thing so that they can get a good job and have a good life. And so they go to 
they go to college they and they and they get you know the credential that they want you know the training whatever uh however they're thinking about it but as a result of this student the student debt neoliberal ideology those folks tend to get shunted into the shittiest and most exploitative um uh, institutions where they, you know, the, these these for-profit colleges that are that are springing up to fill the the demand for 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 credentials and training um, that the state is unwilling to provide, and um, you know, so it's like you know, get the, the it's like a perfect example of how like a, a, the subtle more little more subtle aspects of kind of the racism of the economic system where you you're, you're disadvantaged at the start and so you're pushed into this other thing that's also racist and just taking you for every penny and even those I think you uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here but even the credentials if you coming out of these for-profit colleges people looking at it like oh University of Phoenix that's a bullshit school it's not real yeah I think any discussion of higher education and student debt and credentialization needs to uh, take into account the degree to which the higher education system itself is highly segregated on exactly the lines that you've talked about. I mean, higher education has always been a mechanism for reproducing social hierarchy um, to one degree or another. I would say that we have used it, we have at times attained a more egalitarian version of higher education um, that opens it up to uh, be an engine of social mobility. That's sort of what the GI Bill was about, what the California Master Plan was about in the 1960s. And those things were exactly shut down when they threatened uh, racial hierarchy on the uh, and, uh, you know, where, where um, the student beneficiary population started to look a lot different than the uh, tax-paying the tax base that was uh, supporting it. Um, so that's where you've gotten the sort of main political conflicts over higher education, higher education policy in the past. Um, and I think you can see it directly in the uh, bifurcation between for-profit and non-profit higher ed. Um, in some ways, I think that actually undersells the um, racial stratification that's going on here. So so you said, you know, you get these for-profit institutions springing up. Uh, that's certainly true. That was especially true in the Great Recession. I mean, for-profit higher education was a pretty niche um, uh, 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 sector uh, pre-Great Recession, you know, focused on a couple of different professional uh, 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 technical qualifications um, that's kind of suddenly expanded into its own whole part of the higher education ecosystem when there were a lot of people who uh, were disemployed and uh, were and were kind of the uh, ideal population for such um, larger institutions and huge networks of private equity funded institutions to prey upon. Um, that was kind of a, uh, a enormous growth industry um, in the Great Recession and, and I would say extending into the early 2000s. Um, in some ways, um, you know, they were all, I mean, they were already on the downswing at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, they were given regulatory relief by uh, the Trump administration. But even so, I would say the shine is off for profit higher education especially these, um, you know, huge um, uh, networks of institutions. Um, 
what's scary though is that the nonprofits have figured out how to operate the ultra profitable business model that the for profits had previously pioneered. So, um, you know, norm like quote unquote normal institutions um, would not have been able to expand their enrollment by tens of thousands of seats in response to an uh, acute event like the Great Recession. You know, now have figured out how to append whole um, continuing education or professional schools to the brand name of a uh, of a legacy higher education institution. I mean, that's what you get with these um, online uh, degree programs where, you know, most of the instruction is outsourced to a for-profit provider, you know, the whole um, uh, uh, profit proposition is that the for-profit provider is kind of operating in the shadows. They'll actually do all the work um, in terms of programming, albeit not a very high level of um uh, of instruction, but they'll say, okay, well, we'll sell you, uh, or, or we'll, you know, to th- their pitch to the university is, you know, give us your brand name of a fancy higher education institution. Let us give out degrees that have that name on it. Um, and we'll, <laughs> we'll do all the work. No, seriously, this is how it it's works. It's a grift. So, yeah. It's a big yeah, grift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in an environment where, um, you know, states have been cutting funding for, uh, for, you know, public higher education institutions, it's a highly attractive one. I mean, you, in some ways, um, you can't blame the, the, the institutions for um, you know entering into contracts of that kind. You can um, never blame the institutions. It's the well, democracy that allows these institutions to do no, this. No, no, right? no. It's not democracy. It is the takeover of state legislatures and boards of regents by uh, corporate interests, by right wing yes, funders. The cr- uh, right, the corruption. You know, the, the corruption yeah, of yeah, our, no, no, our no, democracy. I mean, yeah. the, the higher education sector is um, you know a parasitized husk of what it once was under the. California Master Plan and its imitators and other state um, higher education systems, um, you know, whereby, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of, you know, the, the state cuts funding because the students look different from the taxpayers um, yep. and, you know, uh, right wing governments can say, okay, well, we uh, cut spending and so we can do a big regressive tax cut. Um, and in response, the administrators of the system kind of go looking for revenue wherever they can find it. And that involves whoring out their names uh, to these, uh, you know, de facto for profit providers that just sort of license the uh, programming, uh, or I should say they license their name to the for-profit providers in order to, um, you know, monetize any kind of uh, prestige that they have. Um, so the the kind of, tradi- like I would say, the traditional for-profit systems kind of come, a- the, the ones that uh, gained great notoriety in the aftermath of the Great Recession are in some ways, you know, not the cutting edge of the grift of higher education. The cutting edge of the grift of higher education is the state university systems that you all know and love. Um, and the uh, kind of for-profit operators uh, uh, programming them on the back end um, through online courses and the like. Now, Marshall, we need some good news. So tell us how a plan like Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren's starts to address uh, the multifarious, corrupt, uh, bullshit ways that higher education has been totally kind of bastardized from the, the public good it was meant to be. Oh, man. So, uh, you know, Warren's plan has a couple of different um, uh, prongs to it. We've been talking about student debt cancellation. That's the part that I particularly have, um, you know, researched in the past. And I think that it's important to to, uh, highlight as reflecting just the total ideological failure of this sort of human capital credentialization uh, nonsense that you get from um, academic economists and the like. I mean, that tends to be my bailiwick. the uh, Warren plan also calls for free public college in her um, c- 
conceptualization of what that means. It's basically a federal state partnership to uh, make public higher education institutions uh, free and equally available to all um, and, uh, you know, on a tuition free basis. Uh, and I think that's enormously inspiring. I hope that that uh, revivifies the idea of higher education as a public good. Um, I just, you know, my, my hesitation in that is that it should and I think you know to some degree the Warren proposal definitely does take on the degree to which the higher education uh, business model has already been neoliberalized and that and needs to be rescued therefrom. Um, right. So uh, you know there's an important aspect of her proposal that is basically institutional accountability. Um, I can tell you from experience that a big disappointment about the higher education policy scene in D.C. is that um, there tends to be a lot of identification with the legacy higher education institutions. Um, from people who derive an enormous amount of their self-worth from the fact that they have lots of degrees from fancy places um, and so they can't see that um, higher education institutions would themselves be um, agents of exactly the same neoliberal corruption that they might easily ad uh, adduce to say the financial industry um, but right. they can't possibly imagine that you know fancy university x would be uh, uh, kind of guilty of the same types of, of uh, malfeasance um, so, so I think there, there's elements of that in the Warren plan, that is annual audits of uh, higher education institutions, real accountability for any institution that receives federal student loan debt. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting, amazingly, that the, the federal government is already the main funder, at least in a financial sense, of uh, the ongoing operating budgets of the vast majority of higher education institutions in this country. Um, but the way that we chose <laughs> to do it is by lending money to individuals, and the idea is that the sort of free market of individuals as consumers choosing a among higher education institutions um, would be sufficient to discipline the quality of the education that's being provided. Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of market fantasy, the, the fantasy of the self-regulating market um, has failed there as it has failed everybody everywhere else. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's just not realistic to imagine that, you know, individual higher education students as higher education consumers would be um, the mechanism by which uh, quality is assured in the higher education space. Um, I think one of the good aspects of the Warren plan is that it looks to leverage the, the, the you know, enormous power that the federal government has as the financial um, uh, backer of, you know, the vast majority of higher education in this country um, to uh, hold institutions accountable. So many questions. Ryan, did you want to jump in? Because I have one if you don't, but go ahead. Um, yeah, I, uh, I guess I wanted to maybe, dr maybe drill down into these sort of institutional details, you know, um, um, Freddie DeBoer, trigger warning, Freddie DeBoer, uh, he had these, uh, a few good articles about just like when he was at Purdue, he had some, some great articles about, uh, the, the, uh, gym and the, um, they, they built some sort of a third space building that was like mostly unoccupied for a year, but just like just ridiculously excessive construction. You know, it's like the nicest gym I've ever even heard of in my life. It's like 150,000 square feet or something like that. And um, while the English department that teaches like 5,000 students a year is like living with asbestos and broken bathrooms and stuff. Um, <laughs> and they have, to so, buy their, they have to buy their own dry erase markers. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, and you can see, it's like, you can see the, the, the logic of business and neoliberalism sort of penetrating these public institutions. And so 
what do you think how do you think we like can root that out you know to to make it more about to, to just be like here you know we're going to give you an education it's going to be a good education but it's going to be provided at like a decent price and it's you know, not going to be like living in a country club for four years <laughs> well i just want to say that a couple of weeks ago i visited the university of utah where i will soon be joining the faculty and uh took a, my own self-guided tour of the gym uh, which was indeed lovely including a, a ski equipment rental facility um and so i will not be <laughs> commenting further on the quality of gyms at uh elite uh, uh state higher education institutions <laughs> in fact in fact marshall we need a holistic education and the body has to be healthy before you can have your mind right for the classroom. yes yes indeed and allow me to transition to that aspect of this conversation where i uh hold forth on the uh, mind body dualism uh that is inherent <laughs> in any higher education um no, I think, I mean, Ryan, the points that you make about the sort of neoliberal logic of higher education are, are absolutely correct and on point. I think it's not out of the question to imagine that we can afford as a society to offer a free and equal, high-quality uh, public, public higher education to everyone. Um, you know, if you look at the way that uh, universities run uh, nowadays. It's just have ha it has these enormous disparities baked into it. Um, I can't speak to what DeBoer has to say because uh, you know that guy is not my biggest fan. But um, you know I can believe that his experience at Purdue is is demonstrative of what uh, public higher education looks like. Um, you know, notwithstanding that, is where the vast majority of American students are and will be educated for the uh, foreseeable future. So I guess I I would take the opportunity to say that this idea that we can sort of disrupt or dispense with the whole edifice of higher education um, because it's just a gigantic waste of money and look at all these ridiculous gyms that are being built, um, you know, that's not uh, a, a, a realistic proposal in the um, stratified society in which we live. I think what we can do is take the uh, institutions that we have available to us and make them radically egalitarian. Um, and the good news with respect to higher education is that we figured out how to do it before. Um, the problem is that we've never figured out how to do it before on a, on a racially egalitarian basis. So I think that's really the um, kind of uh, frontier on which uh, radical higher education uh, policy discussion and debate and agitation uh, should proceed. Right, and you and you note that actually the problem in the in the shifting of funding from institutions to individuals and and, and providing for individuals to take on debt to to uh, you know get their own skills in part I mean not in part but fundamentally had to do with race and and the fact that in uh, right 1965 it it wasn't uh, feasible or it was decided not to be feasible right to to incorporate uh, racially integrated. Um, like higher education as as part of the integration project, or how would you describe that 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 kind of important moment? Yes, I think higher education is in some ways, uh, or was in some ways, in retrospect, a bellwether of the backlash to the civil rights movement. So um, in the mid '60s, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, by which. Uh, racial integration uh, became the policy of the federal government. Um, at the same time, through the Higher Education Act of 1965, higher education became the policy of the federal government. Um, and yet, there was never really a moment in which racially egalitarian higher education became the policy of the federal government. Um, and you can see that between the uh, 
transition or the the evolution of the higher education acts they're renewed every uh, seven years i believe or at least that's how it's supposed to work um so you know we got the higher education act of 1965 that introduced the federal student loan system as a sort of minor aside um but also um you know expanded uh institutional funding for uh state higher education institutions and that was clearly inspired by the california master plan that had been uh, promulgated a, a little bit earlier in the decade um but by 1972 and thereafter the federal uh emphasis really shifted from that kind of institutional support to the student loan program where we're investing in individuals or individuals are taking on debt to invest in themselves and their own future earnings um and that kind of logic of individual choice and selection among institutions um, really, I think, undermine the whole idea of higher education as a public good and specifically a racially egalitarian public good. Um, so, you know, we did adopt, at least in theory, uh, se- uh, desegregation of K-12 education as a federal policy with Brown v. Board of Education, um, but we never got to that same place with respect to higher education because higher education was, even as the federal government took on that responsibility still seen as um, a luxury or at least not a necessary um, a- a component of individuals participation as an economic person um, in the o- in overall society and I think that's really what's changed I mean what we've seen in the enormous expansion of credentialization is that higher education is uh, uh, inherent component of individuals partage- participation as an economic person in society um, and under those circumstances uh, we cannot continue to dole it, dole it out um, unequally on the basis of race right and, and it seems to me that this is an instance where ceding to neoliberalism is um, just begging for racial and gender discrimination uh, at the hands of the market. And so it seems to me that solutions like Elizabeth Warren's or proposals that seek to uh, you know, make public goods um, or bring public goods back from what was left to the quote-unquote self-regulated market is not just an economic but also right, a, a uh, race and, and gender uh, progressive type of policy. Does that seem right to you as well? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I would go farther even than Senator Warren has in this proposal in that, um, you know, where we've seen um, racial egalitarianism succeed in this country's history, it has been as a a progressive federal policy. Um, And I myself would support a kind of federalization of higher education in that exact same vein, if not the total federal takeover of the whole higher education system, because, you know, even I might say that should go too far as a future employee of the University of Utah. Um, I think it would be, uh, uh, I I think it would be a benefit to the overall higher education ecosystem to have a federal higher education system that was conceived on explicitly racially egalitarian lines. So um, one thing I can say about my my future employer that is positive is that by the standards of flagship state higher education institutions, it is relatively racially egalitarian in the sense that the population of the university looks racially similar to the population of the state of Utah. Um, That is probably highly contingent on the fact that the population of the state of Utah is itself relatively racially egalitarian. Um, If you look at... White as the snow and the slopes of Utah? No, 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 no. well, that I think that's a little bit of poetic license, but perhaps not not uh, in, in 
completely. Um, if you look at states that do have a more diverse population, um, it tends to be much less represented in the population of the flagship state uh, higher education institution. Um, and that's where I think the federal government could really uh, strike a blow that that states by themselves will sort of never be able to uh, attain just sort of by the logic of um, the federalist system and the way in, uh, that um, states tend to be less racially egalitarian in the ways that they make policy than is the federal government. When the federal government chooses to be racially egalitarian, um, it has succeeded at that, and states generally don't. Ryan, I have one uh, more. I, I have, just look. I have, I have one more dumb question, but I'll let you go first if you want. But I, I want to get to my dumb question at some point. Okay, yeah, I I, ju- I just uh, happened to look up the uh, the demographics of Utah, and only eighty six percent white. Um, the, the the though perhaps the determining factor is it's only one percent black. Um, but uh, I just wanted to to. To you know the the conver- the the discussion about credentialization and and how employers always want to have the pick of the litter you know the most the most educated person have you know the the best um, uh, you know trained person or whatever do you think Marshall that that there is too much education at least in some respects um, that that there that that people are being pushed to get degrees that are really unnecessary in certain circumstances and that there's you know a lot of people who could just be learning on the job and you know or or taking shorter degrees instead of you know bachelors instead of masters or 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 and that sort of thing well, as I'm professionally interested in the provision of higher education to the broadest possible set of the population, I can't really say there's too much education. Um, but I can definitely say that I think people are being pushed to get um, too many degrees or the wrong degrees or the training that should be provided on the job. That I have no problem uh, endorsing. Um, I think there's a very concerning tendency in the sort of public debate about higher education and the student debt crisis that says, okay, well, you know, people, if people are unable to pay off their student debt, um, that's because, you know, they don't, again, they don't have the needs, the the skills uh, necessary for today's job. So the way to make sure that doesn't happen is by asking employers what skills do they need in order to um, be suited for the needs of today's jobs and therefore to give employers more say over the, uh, uh, construction of curricula and the um, routes to a degree that uh, students are are uh, are provided with. So you know there are, you know if you if you ask sort of uh, higher education um, experts kind of like where are the innovative solutions to the student debt crisis coming from, what they'll say is okay, well you know it's uh, programs that. S- essentially tailor higher education more towards employers, give employers more discretion over what degrees people get, what people learn in the context of any given degree, um, because then, you know, employers will say, okay, well, if you, if you churn out students that have this and this and this, then I'll hire them. Um, and that's considered to be the uh, cutting edge solution to the student debt crisis. And that really worries me quite a bit because that locks in employers or uh, students slash workers to particular employers, even more so than the existing system does. Um, And that just is itself evidence of this shift of the cost of job training from uh, employers to individuals. Um, So I really do worry that like, even as the kind of 
reality of the student debt crisis. Okay, so maybe you know the the policy wonks have kind of realized that the student debt crisis isn't just a bunch of whiny millennials. It is in fact a, a kind of cohort wide um, lack of uh, earnings wherewithal to pay down the student debt that they have been instructed to take on. Um, well, okay, the solution to that is to kind of indenture uh, students and workers more more and more to uh, particular employers that happen to enter into give, uh, partnerships with uh, particular higher education institutions. And that's just, I mean, as, as your uh, body language suggests, that is exactly the opposite of the uh, policy solution that we need to the student oh, yeah, debt no, crisis. No. And they're, they're uh, unabashed about the indentured servitude. There are proposals yeah. for actually providing your future wages, right, to, to, to the people funding your education. Just yes, like, yeah, yeah. The people who do these uh, uh, ISAs, um, uh, you know, kind of get very offended when you liken them to indentured servitude. They get a percentage <laughs> of your wages going out a few years. You have to sign contracts that allow them to pick which bank account your wage gets paid into because they have contracts with um, the the banks or credit unions or whatever in order to take their cut out the back end. Um, you know, they get to monitor what, um, you know, your wages in real time. I mean, um, you know, like we've been there, done that in the 18th century and every century before that. No, uh, you know, <laughs> can I tell you, Marshall, I had this experience and this is kind of a uh, revelatory moment, although I'm somewhat anonymous, so it's, it's not that risky but i had one graduate degree i was going for another graduate degree and then in trying to transfer my transcripts from one school to the one i was um, accepted into uh, it turns out there was a one loan that was granted by the former institution i went to that i didn't know about that i hadn't been paying that i just found out about and they wanted me to pay all 10,000 of it before they would transfer the transcript of course i not having the, the ability to do that couldn't do it and, and so I was like, can we make it a payment agreement? You know, they, they need to, to know whether I'm accepting and, and they need the transcript. And uh, the president of the other institution got me on the phone and just tried to manhandle me to, to try. He must have thought that I had magic ability to pay this whole 10000 I didn't. But like he I, I was like, you know, I think, this, you know, I will be able to pay you better once I have this other right degree. And, and he's like, well, I'm not sure. And he said, basically, he said, Technically, you're, you know, in debt to me, and I should have a say what your future should look like and whether this is a good investment for you. Uh, did he write that down? He, I, I should have made him do it, but he really, he was really telling me that I'm the one that gets to decide about your future, right? And I don't know that this is a good investment for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's astounding. Um, I know a couple of lawyers that you should definitely talk to. Uh, that is illegal <laughs> under the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The idea that a president of a higher education institution would tell you what job you are and are not allowed to take or what yep. degree you can or cannot enroll for um, is uh, the total derogation of every principle on which this country was founded. Uh, and the idea that uh, that that would in any way be acceptable under the existing economic paradigm um, should cause my entire profession to go hang them their heads in shame, never to be seen in public again uh, until they issue a blanket apology to the entire United States population signed by every single PhD economist who has currently been uh, uh, adjudicated as such by uh, any PhD granting institution in this country. You're my new best friend, Marshall. I appreciate that. Uh, happy ending to the story. I went and found like a hedge fund ma hedge fund manager. Oh, congratulations! Friends. That's the solution to every <laughs> policy problem. 
no, no. But who was going to give me a personal loan to be able to to do this? But then at the last minute, literally the day that my transcripts were due, the institution called, and it was all a bullshit bluff. And they granted they they sent the transcript. They they wanted to wait. Oh, until good. The last so day. neoliberalism does work. I'm glad to hear this this <laughs> oh uh, happy ending that shows was, that the market is uh, in fact. Uh, all, uh, I, all I was so tortured. I, I just, it was so traumatic. I can't even tell. I mean, you can imagine. Um, but uh, th- that leads me into my, my next set of questions, uh, if you don't mind. Just a few questions. I, I'm really hoping that proposals like Elizabeth Warren can, can do what we hope to combat this neoliberal nightmare. Um, but I had two countervailing <laughs> thoughts this morning as I read about the news. And, and Ryan's like, you're dumb, uh, but ask Marshall. And so that's what I'm doing. And so, so my first thought was, shit, because I teach at a small college, private college. I'm like, shit, this college is going under, right? Like, it's already, it's already like financially a little shaky. And, and I'm like, ah, this is done. It's done. There's, you know, that was my first thought. Then my second thought was, wait a minute. It would take a while to expand the number of public colleges available. So doesn't that just mean that the current public colleges will be really, really competitive because everyone wants a free education? And so all the people who are like 50-50 on private versus public are going to go for the public ones, making their acceptance rates really, really like low or you know just really selective? And doesn't that mean that my poor students who are already working a number of hours just to pay their tuition at my college are going to be the ones that get fucked? And, and everyone else that like can pay for tutors to get them into these free public colleges are going to benefit. And then my poor students. So I went from thinking about myself to, to fearing for my students. So, so alleviate my concerns here. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, what you just described kind of implicates the whole industrial organization of the higher education system, I think, in ways that we uh, don't quite understand fully. Uh, so it's a little bit hard for me to make a uh, total prediction. I think um, there's no reason to believe that in the cert- in the status quo, things will depart in any meaningful way from the way that they are currently being conducted. Which means that you know, overall, notwithstanding the gigantic uh, scam that higher education and student debt represent, um, the shift of uh, the cost of job trading from employers to individuals, you know, the basically people have no other choice so they will continue to enroll in higher education both public and private um in and take on the debt necessary because they basically have no other route uh to making a living and um you know it's a little uh i mean you know there as we were talking about earlier with respect to the kind of uh obsolescence of the like traditional for-profit business model, but the sense in which nonprofit institutions have figured out how to operate themselves like for-profits, um, you know, that's going to um, kind of ripple through the higher education system for, you know, a couple of years or decades to come, um, uh, barring any significant policy change. Uh, but, you know, I don't really foresee that, you know, kind of like one segment of the nonprofit uh, higher education system will like definitively triumph over another other than, you know, what we've already seen, which is the uh, legacy, uh, you know, wealthiest institutions just sort of continue to um, uh, kind of accelerate beyond anybody else and everybody else kind of fighting for scraps. Right. And I saw I saw that Elizabeth Warren said there's a hundred billion in her plan for Pell Grants. Maybe that has to do with the private college part of it. 
Yes, I mean, I think, well, I mean, I think that speaks to the issues that uh, low-income students have uh, kind of paying for college beyond just the tuition issue. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that's kind of crucially important to ensure that a free college uh, uh, plan, like, does, in fact, make it possible for people of all income levels and backgrounds to uh, have access to this kind of newly um, universalized public good. Um and I think, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of debate in the higher education policy world about whether expanding federal aid um, increases tuition on its own account. Um, and I think the, the best evidence shows that uh, Pell Grants don't, uh, but uh, lo increased loan amounts do. Um, so in that respect, I think that the way that the uh, Warren proposal is pitched is uh designed to um, kind of reel in the upward uh, inflationary pressure on tuition um, that has been kind of baked into the expansion of the federal student loan program to date. Cool. Well, I know you got to head out, Marshall, but uh, thanks for coming on. And yeah, um, yeah we'll keep our fingers crossed that yeah, it's something been like this Thank will you. pass soon. Yeah, Thank good. you so uh, much for, for putting my mind at ease, my friend. <laughs> I, I, well, if I did that, then I uh, definitely did not accomplish my mission. Um, <laughs> great great talking to you guys. Glad we could do this. Um, good to be talking about the hell that awaits us all, um, no matter what our relationship to the higher education world. Um, glad we could uh, connect on this. That's right. You're always right. welcome back to, to talk about the hell that we are persisting through together. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Have a good evening, guys. You too. Bye. Take care. Yep, bye. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.